another episode of Talking Force today. Our guest is Paul Smith. Uh, this is going to be a good one. This is going to be a story of you know two guys who accomplished some incredible things, but also to learn a lot of stuff along the way. And I think not only did we learn a lot as professionals, um, but also learning some practical stuff in the trenches, um, having worked through hundreds of athletes throughout our time together while we worked at Yale. And then obviously his story um, has continued now uh, to Arizona. So without further ado, Paul Smith, thank you so much for coming on. You bet. Excited to be here. It's been, a, like you said, been a long time coming. So looking forward to chatting a little bit. Awesome. So can you just tell me a little bit about your story for for those who don't know how you even got into athletic training typically everyone has that moment where they got bit by the iron bug or there was something that happened to them that was like you know i really want to commit myself to this calling and i say that because this isn't a nine to five it's something you better enjoy doing but everyone has that start point could you just tell us a little bit just kind of where you come from yeah, for sure. I think uh, initially, I think a lot of athletic trainers have that same start point of got hurt at some point in their personal athletic career, got introduced to what athletic training itself actually is and kind of jumped into it head on from there. So uh, me personally, I got injured when I was wrestling in high school. Uh, didn't really know what sports medicine or athletic training was. Uh, when I was looking at going to school, I, I, I was leaning towards that medical world, but didn't really know what. Um, always had a passion for athletics and, and sports at all levels. Um, so I got exposed to my athletic trainer at high school, who at that point was kind of a, you know, he was there a couple hours a day, covered football practice and some wrestling matches and things like that. Um, and then talked to him, figured out exactly what it was and started looking at schools that offered that as a degree option, um, which then in turn led me to Boston University, uh, where I got my undergraduate degree in athletic training. And kind of learned a lot about it from there. So um, different experiences working at high schools, division three schools, uh, division one schools, kind of figuring out what path I wanted to go on. And at that point, got a passion with kind of contact sports, the, the high risk, high reward type sports for athletic training, um, which led me to Boise State University to work as a graduate assistant um, with the wrestling program there. So stayed there for about two years. I was fortunate enough to, to land a full-time position at Boise State working with the football program. Um, so I stayed there for another three years in that position uh, and then rotated back to the East Coast where I'm from, which is where our start kind of came from at Yale University. Um, so at Yale, I was the associate head athletic trainer and head football athletic trainer for three years. Um, had an opportunity to jump back to the FBS setting at Boise State as the director of sports medicine for football for about 14 months or so. And then last September uh, in 2021, I made the transition down here to Tucson, Arizona, working as the assistant head football athletic trainer for the football program down here. A lot of people, when they start this, they go, okay, I'm going to get an undergrad, then I'm going to get that master's, and it's going to be a very clear shot. Oftentimes it's not. And I would go so far as to say you kind of have fast-tracked as a rising star through your profession um, channel. And I know we've, we've seen this in strength and conditioning as well. What are some of the things that you thought that were correct about the career trajectory? And then what are some of the things that really you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that, or I would have done that differently. What are, what are some of those that maybe as someone's listening and they're just getting ready to graduate here in May, they should be thinking about? Yeah, I think, I think in my head when I was graduating, I thought I had to know exactly what I wanted to do and where I wanted to do it and how I wanted to do it, but kind of quickly learned that 
you you have plenty of time there's so much time in this profession and so much time in, in especially any profession that you don't have to have a clear-cut idea of exactly what it is you want to do um, trying different things working with different people working in different environments uh, continuing to learn and grow i think is how you figure out exactly where you fit in your career path you know athletic training is going through kind of this monumental shift right now from uh, an undergraduate certification degree to an entry-level master's degree and it's kind of throwing a wrench in that typical path you know previously if you wanted to work in the collegiate professional sports setting it was kind of you go undergrad you go graduate assistantship you go assistant and you kind of work your way up that ladder um that entry-level master's now is is putting putting a different twist on it so uh, you're having a little bit less clinical experience but you're learning a lot more didactic information in your program you're learning different skill sets that athletic trainers like myself who have been out of school for a little while didn't necessarily learn in our education and so it's setting up people for slightly different career paths um, but I, I think the thing for me is you know you don't really know exactly what you're getting into until you're actually into it you know you talked about not this isn't a nine to five you know, strength and conditioning is the same thing, depending on what setting you're at. And it's uh, when I was a graduate assistant, I started to get those phone calls at midnight at three in the morning on Sunday afternoons. You kind of learn that quickly, whether or not this is for you. Um, you know, I think the thing that I love the most about athletic training is I, I like being that go to guy. I like all my student athletes that I work with on a day to day basis, knowing that at any point in time, they could call me with a question, they could reach out to me. I'm always gonna be there as a resource for them, whether they flip their bike on their way home from class and they need to go to the emergency room or their stomach hurts at two o'clock in the morning or no matter what it is, and they're, they're going through a personal crisis, you know, knowing that we're always available, I think is the thing that drove me to continue into this setting and, and continue to do what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's the same thing for a lot of people in that strength and conditioning world. You know, you, you develop these relationships and you build those connections where you, you become close with people. There's plenty of student athletes that I worked with previously that are no longer student athletes of mine that I talk to all the time. And, you know, when you're in this clinic, when you're in the setting, it's professional. But after that, you develop these these relationships that last for a really long time. Now, you touched on a really important point there and that shift in the field and profession. Strength and conditioning, again, is kind of like that that cousin that shows up at the party that, you know, it's hit or miss depending on what you're going to get. And in athletic training, you don't really have that. Like you have to you, you're, you're reporting to a doctor. It's a lot more medical. Um, so I, I'd say at least it's a little bit more predictable or should be predictable in athletic training. But you're still asking someone to get a master's degree or, you know, secondary education. But with the entry level pay being so low, even the full time pay being so low, we joke about it. You know, it's it's less money than working at Walmart. But yet you want to have the care of a medical professional or in strength, you know, you want the person who's going to make sure that the athlete's back doesn't get blown out or that the percentages are set right. But you're asking quite a lot for something that's 10 month part time cash only 10 grand, 20 grand, 30, call it any of the grands, not uh, a sustainable thing. And so you see this hopping around phenomenon. And then I think there's also a lot of barrier to maybe some really good talent or good talent goes math. And we see this flight right now. The H2F program is taking 1,600 strength and conditioning coaches out of the college ranks. And there's only about 3,500 to begin with. And same thing, private sector or technology. What's kind of your thoughts or what? how do you see it going 
um, knowing that yes, the demands may go up for certifications, but if there's not a you know subsequent follow up with the financial point, I mean, you know that's five six years of education, money, time for what? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a loaded question. I think you know the the athletic training profession tried to make that switch a couple of years ago with the goal of trying to become a more reputable allied healthcare professional, and I think. The, the idea was that we'd put these professionals out into the world that had these entry-level masters, and then we'd instantly be on par with some of the more established allied health professionals like physical therapists or NPs or something like that. And, and while I think a lot of people who are exposed to athletic trainers on a day-to-day basis understand that the skill set is there to, to be in those trenches with those allied healthcare professionals, we work with a specialized a specialized client population or patient population, depending on where you are, be it collegiate athletics, high school athletics, tactical and military performing arts, you know, physician setting, there's all these different areas now for athletic training, but, but it's not like a flip of a switch. You don't add that masters to the degree and then instantly change that. Um, I think there's a lot of places that are doing good things to try to up that entry-level pay for athletic trainers, but you're seeing a huge exodus in the same way you are in strength and conditioning. I think this past year, you know, just looking at the job boards and looking at postings and talking to colleagues, you know, you're having these positions open that three or four years ago, you would have gotten 40 or 50 applicants for, and now you're getting seven or eight that are qualified for it. And it's just people are one, either holding out for, for more pay, which I think is good because I think that's going to change the demand and it's going to help the employers recognize that, Hey, if you want somebody of this caliber, you're going to have to support it a little bit more. But the other thing is some people, you know, we went from a graduate assistantship to an assistant position to a full-time when I was a GA, I mean, I was making a thousand dollars a month, and but I got my degree paid for and I could pay my rent and, you know, I didn't have anything else going on. I lived in the training room and it, it was what it was. And I, I, that was 11 years ago, but, you know, I say that's kind of the old school way of doing it now. You know, people before me did the same thing for even less. And so in my head, that was what I needed to do. I needed to grind it out. I needed to work the 70 or 80 hours a week to get there. Um, but now what people are doing, instead of coming out with this entry-level master's and then immediately going to a full-time position, everywhere is adding these different internships or fellowships or whatever they whatever they want to call them. And it's and it hasn't changed that that level. It's just taken a graduate assistantship, replaced it with that internship type type degree or type experience and now we're right back to where we were and so I think as as long as people are continuing to push and I don't oppose people holding out for more money I'm all for it you know I think you I think the idea of thinking that you could come out from a master's degree with with a year and a half of of schooling clinical experience and get a seventy thousand dollar entry-level job is unrealistic I think that in a couple years that could be the real thing but but we're not there yet and so if we want to continue to keep people in the profession and put out good clinicians, there, there needs to be some kind of compromise between those two areas. You know, the National Athletic Trainers Association and the Board of Certification held all these town hall meetings before making this decision, held votes with everything. At our national meetings, there was always discussions about whether or not we go to the entry-level masters or stay at the undergraduate certification. And I see both sides of it. And I think... I initially leaned more towards the undergraduate degree just because that's how I went through it, how I learned. I think I grew more as a graduate assistant than I have at any other point in my career. You get 
you get certified in June. And then in July, I'm dropped into an athletic training room and given 30 athletes that half of them were older than me. And it's like, here you go, like figure it out. And so, you know, trial by fire really puts it in, but I, I, I'm torn between it. I think there could be really positive changes, but there needs to continue to be people you know, some programs are doing a really good job of supporting their positions. You know, here in Arizona, we try we try to continue to raise that bar and we try to continue to have this be a place that people want to come. And we do that by trying to support these positions more than than we have in the past and some other places have in the past. And, and it's tough because college athletics is a grind. And you know that. And like you said, there's there's countless people in this profession that are taking that jump and going to the next better thing. And I think that you'd, you'd be hard pressed to find people that work in either the athletic training room or the weight room that haven't explored those options, you know, it's, it's out there and they're real and it's just figuring out where the, where the passion lies and then hopefully finding somewhere that supports it the way that you want it to be supported. Yeah. You know, it was said to me, um, previously that, uh, you know, everyone's replaceable. And I remember hearing that and being like, wow, that's a, that's an interesting statement. Yeah. People are replaceable, but performance necessarily isn't. Outcomes are not, and the weak, the weird thing about strength and conditioning and then athletic training is that how do you quantify the fact that your team is going in for treatment? We're going to talk a little bit about that. I mean, you had our weight, our weight room, and our athletic training room were one. People wanted to go see you. They didn't look at you as someone who was going to try to take you out of things. It was if I don't do this with Paul, I don't get to play. You know, with the weight room upstairs. Oh, well, I read this thing online. Da, da, da. Well, guess what? All the people that don't follow the program, uh, they don't play as much. And so, yes, there was a technical capacity and component. But I also do think that the relationships that you have with the athletes, the relationships that the staff has creates an environment. And just like any kind of artistic performance, I don't think people are interchangeable. It's not cogs in the wheel. Certain positions, admin positions, you can plug them in, plug them out. And no one's going to know the difference. But I think the people that interface with your athlete or people that interface with the operator or the, um, the teams, uh, they're really important people. And I want to touch on that a little bit because I get asked a lot, what was the secret for success at Yale? You know, and then just talking football. How did you go from, you know, beating a team that you hadn't beaten 10 years? How did you go to have an undefeated? How did you go to, I'm not sure exactly, and maybe one of the coaches listening can fill us in, but whether it was wide receiver, whether it was running back, quarterback, individual records were shattered as well. And I, and I tell people, it's the terroir. And those who don't know or maybe don't drink wine don't understand that terroir is just a catch-all term for the everything. It's the land, it's the sea, it's the time, it's the people that handle the grapes, it's all this stuff. And so if you look at Chateau Margaux or you look at Lafitte, there's a reason why that costs more than barefoot. It's the care and the time that's put into it. And I think that when we talk about building that everything, there's an obligation not only to the leaders and the staff to understand its importance, but then the people that are actually part of the process to know their roles. And I, I tell people all the time, I could send someone down to you not as being an athletic trainer, not as anything, but just, hey, can you take a look at that? Hey, could you look at that? And it was never met with, you're trying to take my job. Conversely, you would say, hey, I don't know if so-and-so should be doing you know, lower body today. And it wasn't, well, he needs to push through it. I said so. And you know, for people that are listening, that's not typically the case. It can sometimes be a little bit of oil and water. It can be a little bit, uh, there can be a little bit of friction, but that was what I think was our success was being able to now come together 
and you know one working with the other but then combined that was a pretty interesting tandem that not only covered everything from all things medical but then being at the tip of the spear of performance so from your perspective and again you've been at more places than i have could you talk about that relationship with strength and i'll say strength um but meaning performance the gps stuff the barbells and and all the regular stuff and speed works and all the gurus could you talk a little bit about your take on that angle and perspective importance yeah absolutely i think when when you look at the the college setting a lot of these high performing places are moving more towards you know we try to call ourselves we don't we don't call ourselves athletic training or sports medicine we try to call ourselves performance medicine you know we're trying to we're trying to help from a medical standpoint keep somebody on the field and help them perform at their best and i think that was the thing that took us a little while at yale to crack into the guys was essentially we're all on the same page here. Like we're not trying to prevent you from doing things. Both of our rooms are working as hard as we possibly can to help you perform at your highest level. And that's the, the training that's taking place in the weight room, but combined with staying healthy in the athletic training room. And I think those things go hand in hand. And I think the good thing we're seeing now is with a lot of places switching to that people who are coming up through their education are being exposed to that kind of performance medicine or high performance team model. And they're learning that that's the way things should be. And I think for us, there was a learning curve. Like we didn't drop in day one and, and connect like that. Like it was, we had to feel each other out. We had to figure out what each other's strengths were. And I think the biggest downfall we had at Yale was that our rooms were four floors apart. You know, I think the only thing that could have helped that situation be any better than it was, was being right across the hall from each other, right next to each other. Um, but it, it took time. And, and I think, you know, we did it with what we had, which was, you know, limited, limited size staffs, limited size resources. And we kind of showed that you could do something like that at a setting like Yale. And then you take that and you extrapolate that to a program that has bigger staffs, way more resources, um, the ability to collect more data and be more objective with things. And it could only improve. Um, and I think we laid the groundwork there. And I think, like you said, the, the people are a huge part of that. But I think the goal, too, is kind of with that is to get a system in place that when one or two pieces are removed, it doesn't completely fall apart. Um, and I think that's a tough thing to do. And so I, I, the goal is to have that trickle down effect where, hey, this is what we did. It worked really well. This is how we did it. This is why we did it. This is when we did it. And then hopefully the people that continue to rise through the ranks pick up those things and continue that trend. You know, I think there, there are a couple of things that come to mind when it comes to those two professions working together that I've seen as roadblocks in the past has been, you know, a lack of humility. You know, I think you got to be humble and you got to recognize when you don't have all the answers. You know, I, I have my CSCS, but I'm not in there training people every day. You know, I use it a lot for my rehabs and my progressions and things like that. But at the same time, like if you ask me to sit down and put together a strength and conditioning program for an off-season football team, could I put something together? Yeah, probably, but I don't have anywhere near the, the mental capacity or the experience to do it at the same level that a strength and conditioning coach has been doing it for so long could. And so I think people come out of undergrad and they get a master's degree and they get dumped into those settings and they're like, oh, I know, I know more than this person. I could do this better than that person. And no, it's not the case. You know, I think there were countless times where I'd get stuck with something and be like, hey, this guy's progressing, but he's hit a plateau and I don't know how to get him through it. And then it's the different programs, the different methods, the different periodizations that were used up there with you that we implemented with those people and different things that we tried from a different mode of exercise, a different modality, and we saw improvements. 
And it was kind of the same thing. It's like, hey, this guy is this guy's stuck at this weight. Is there something going on with his back? Is there something going on with his knees? Like recognizing when the collaboration between those two areas could help benefit somebody instead of being so stubborn. Um, I think that's a big one that, you know, when we're when we're going through the hiring process and looking at bringing people in, you know, the, the two things that we try to draw out in those interview process are two of a couple are humility and then the emotional intelligence of, of people. And I think those are two big ones where you got to learn how to have certain conversations, when to have certain conversations and show that respect to those people that are in a different setting and recognize when you don't have all those answers, you, you gotta, I think you've seen it too. It's like, the, the amount of times that people have gone into a room that's not theirs and, and tried to lay it down on the table that they, they know more and they could do this better. Like you, you can't, like, you don't know what it's like to be in that room every day. You know, you see people who, you know, it, the, the kid who goes away for a month and, and somebody at home tells them that people here don't know what he's doing. Well, they, they see a, they see a two week snippet. We see the other 50 weeks when we're trying to work with that guy. And so recognizing that, you know, it's a team approach everybody's got to be humble. Everybody needs to know what they excel at, but then also grow. You know, I know what I wasn't good at when I got there and I know what I focused on to try to grow. And I think it was the same for, for everybody else that helped that, that machine run so smoothly. I think you bring up a great point of humility because those were the two things we would preach on with the young groups was, you know, to be humble and hungry is a hard combination because usually they, they don't go hand in hand hungry. They're going to throw the next person under the bus to show how much they know humble you know, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you got to know something like you got to be good at it. But I think also as a, a leader or administrator, yeah, we're going to foster an environment where we're going to close the doors and we're going to have weekly staff meetings or we're going to talk and, you know, behind closed doors, you know, you need to have a thick skin. I'm going to be hard on you. I'm going to critique you, even if it's colleague to colleague. But when we go outside that door, we're all in alignment. You can sit there and how many meetings upon meetings to have a meeting about another meeting, send you a teamworks to have another meeting, all to have more meetings, but it doesn't matter if you're not in alignment once you go forward facing. And once it gets out, athletes aren't dumb. They can see when there's cracks, you know, you know, in the foundation and, and sometimes too, and if you're not in the field, you know, to think that sometimes that might be weaponized or that might be, you know, used against you. It could be a coach who's looking to try to, you know, keep their job. You know, and so and again, there's an obligation of what you have to do, but you have to realize like athletes want to play. They want to get better. They want to have the best care. But I think often, as you mentioned, I'm the young strength coach. I didn't run a program that was so hot. Now all these backs are hurt. Well, don't tell me don't. I did this at, you know, whatever school. No, no, no you got to change it. Like we can't be having that. We can't be we have to push it forward, but we can't be, you know, injuring um, people on the way out. And I think about. I think about how many times my very, very in-depth eval, when I would send someone down, he'd be like, Paul, I, I don't know, but it's just not right. Like, I, I don't know, something something down here and pointing at like a knee or a leg or something. Like, I, can, we, can we get extra eyes? And, and one of the best things you would say is, no, you're good. And I think athletic trainers, because again, from the medical perspective, everything's a shade of gray, no athletes, you know, every athlete's individual, but just to give confidence. And I, I never really cared in the medical report of, what the mechanism of injury was or what that was, that was your role, but you would give me confidence to say, yeah, this person insert knee, ankle, whatever they can do uppers, you know, or they can progress to a rack pull. And if you're an athletic trainer out there, like hear me when I say that's probably one of the most powerful things you can tell a strength and conditioning coach is that not don't do this, 
but actually you can go hard on grip work. You can go hard on whatever. So try to facilitate action, not we're just gonna keep them out of the weight room. I mean, very rarely you would ever say, yeah, this person's completely shut down. And you know what? The boys knew that too, that if Paul says you're shut down, you're shut down because that's what needs to happen. And so there's no arguing. And as you mentioned, it takes time. I think the other thing is people get handed and thrown into a dumpster fire. And I don't like this. This isn't good. We need to fix it now. Well, you know, it, it took years to get you here. It took you months to get here. It's going to take a little time to get out. But I can't stress enough that as an administrator, if you're bringing up people, you have to have, as you mentioned, I love that point on the uh, process so that people know where they fit in that role. And that junior coach, yep, sure, that's a that's a slap tear. But do you know the person? Do you know where they come from? Do you know what happened two years ago when they had the same slap tear in their other shoulder? So I think context really matters. But any other thoughts on just kind of things that you thought helped get us to where we got with uh, with Yale on that communication side? Well, I mean, the communication is a huge part. I think that's, that's a big thing that people lack a lot is, you know, the daily the daily stop in the daily just chat. And I think there's, there's that level of laying that foundation where, you know, yeah, I went to the coach's offices every day and ran through the injury report, but I made it a point one or two other times during that day to just stop in and see how they're doing. So that way, the only time that you're delivering that information isn't just bad news, right? Like they, you go in there and if it's like, oh, the Grim Reaper's coming like everybody's coming to bring the bad news. Like, yeah, every once in a while, that's what it is. Unfortunately, that's part of the job. But at the same time, like, you know, you got to build that relationship on things outside of just the injuries and just the regressions and whatever that might be. And so I think that takes a long time and it takes, it takes groundwork. And I think the, the difference that you see from being in the trenches with it every day is like you mentioned there, all the other factors that go into it, you know, what, how did this guy handle this last time this happened? How does this coach need to be communicated with versus that coach? How does this position group sit in their meetings and discuss things versus how does that other position group do it? You know, is, is you have a running back with the same exact injury as a defensive lineman, you know, maybe you're going to do certain things similarly, but maybe the position coach for one group treats those guys completely differently than the other and need to have the ability to recognize that and communicate differently. You know, you'd see it all the time, the, the way the, the what one one specific coach would want out of his guys in the weight room versus what a different coach would want. You have to be able to recognize when those things come and look at that whole picture of, you know, especially at a place like Yale where the academic demand is so high and there's so many outside stressors. How do you take all of that into account when you're putting a plan together for a guy? It's not an ankle sprain. It's an ankle sprain of a kid who drums in a band on the weekend, who walks two miles to class every day, who has no support system around school. Like you have to figure out all these different things and treat them all completely differently compared to, to one from the other. Yeah. And I think, you know, you hit it right there is that it's the multiple layers upon layers that go into the individual. And I will say though, uh, to, um, specifically, you know, our, our coach, coach Reno's, um, philosophy of letting us do our jobs. And there wasn't a time where, you know, if we went into his office and I remember, I could think of practices, I could think of, you know, different situations in season, you know, your relationship with the players is different than mine. My players, um, would come and talk to me, your players would come talk to you. And then we put our heads together. But I remember, you know, walking in with you a couple of times and saying, Hey, you know, here's what we think. And to actually have a head coach who ultimately is going to make that final call go, you know what, my staff is seeing something, even 
you know, they got a million things going on, but trusting that in that blind spot, that that's what's best for the athlete, which then by proxy is what's best for the team. I really admired that because I don't know necessarily if that's the case at every school, um, you know, uh, and, and again, there's always things we can do better. There's always times where we could push forward, but I think it was kind of understood. At least the players knew that they could come to us because at the end of the day, they're going to graduate. They're going to go on and be regular people. And so in this moment in time to give us that trust and care into them and, and how they train and how they recover, that's a huge responsibility. And I also know that's why I blow my gasket when I think about strength coaches who, you know, arbitrarily throw stuff against the wall to see if it sticks, but then you get hurt in the weight room, you know, and, and again, you can't ever get rid of injuries. It's a part of the game, but did you maximize every opportunity um, moving forward? And I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a volatile moving target that depending on the time of year and the time of season, the, the record of the team and the vibe and the culture of the team, it's, it's unique year to year, even I'd say even week to week. So definitely. Now we talked a lot about theory. Those are good concepts. How did we do it? So I want to talk, and I know you probably don't even think twice about this. The injury report that you wrote was incredible. And for those that are listening, you have to imagine you get this sheet. It could be every day. It could be every other day. But you basically get the name of the athlete. You'd go down the line. What might have I can't even remember specifically because I know my columns that I would look for was basically what are they going to do at practice with the sport coach? What are they allowed to do in the weight room? And then any kind of notes. And we would joke that those would be that, you know, that these are the notes that if you do this, they're going to break. So we had to pay attention. And so on that chart, for at least I'm going to explain for mine, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts of how you created this um, and how people could implement it. But we're either looking at full, so they could be full. And, and again, maybe you think of an injury, but full, but we're going to reduce their load, their volume by 50%. That could be running. That could be total reps. It would be intensity. Um, so we don't want them really going heavy and that maybe they're coming back off an injury. Maybe they're coming post-surgical or you would have a range of motion that you didn't want. So maybe they can pull. So they're full body, but pulling only on the uppers. And so we wouldn't bench or say something like that. The amount of times that that thing said out of the weight room can do nothing was minimal. Like I, I, I can't think of five times where someone was completely out, out, um, that's not the case everywhere. A lot of times it's conversations in passing or it's a text message or whatever their communication platform is. But that sheet for our staff was a lifeline. And you even color coded it too. And so and the color coding of green, yellow, red, and I don't even know if there's like a black if someone was out long term. Green was they were in with everybody else, regular person. Yellow meant that a junior coach or a full-time staff member had to keep eyes on them. So if you're listening, you're in the one to four, one to eight range um, if they were in yellow. And that was extra set of eyes and care and comfort because they were likely to get injured in the weight room if whatever were in the comments happened. Red was either myself or specifically a senior coach on a one to four, sometimes even one to one ratio. If someone's coming back, usually post-surgical that you it's a it, that's a very 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 tricky situation and you need expert eyes and knowing more likely than not you will be regressing and or excluding certain workouts depending on how they felt that day so that green yellow red system was built into our workflow of how we ran the room coach bo we had him on a few months ago talking about that but i remember every day we would check what we got greens we got yellows we got reds and i would always keep an eye out for the reds 
Coach Bo would make sure the manager, the yellows, um, and then the greens were kind of part of the rest of the staff. How did you come up with that? And then also to, if you could go back and modify it or change it, would you, and what would it be? Yeah, I think it's, uh, that's something that from an injury report standpoint, I don't, I don't know if I slept through that class in undergrad or if they just didn't teach it or what, but that's not something that, and I hope they're doing it now. I don't know if they are, but again, every setting is completely different. But uh, when I first got to Boise State and I was a GA with the wrestling team, you know, my, my athletic training that I worked in at that point was down the hall from the wrestling room. And so my injury report was essentially walking down the hall and just talking with our coaching staff a couple of times a day, something new popped up, whatever that was. And wrestlers are notoriously a tricky breed where you try to tell one of those guys, he can't do something. He's going to go do it 10 times harder. And so it makes it, it probably wouldn't have fit as well in that, in that particular setting. But then once I got the opportunity to jump on full-time and, and kind of move from that GA role to that full time role with the football program. Uh, the head football guy at the time at Boise State was Jim Spooner, who's a big mentor of mine. He's he's taught me a lot in my career, uh, a guy who he's at Washington State now, and I, I rely on him pretty heavily just in, in a day to day career path now. Um, he's the one who introduced me to that particular setup. You know, when you are learning documentation in, in undergrad or schooling from an athletic trainer standpoint, you're taught that what you put into a note, anybody else should be able to read and reproduce either what you did or be able to kind of visualize your evaluation and be able to check every box to see exactly what you did. If it was a rehab note, they should be able to read your, read your documentation, then go out and replicate that rehab process that you ran with somebody. So you gotta be a little bit more detailed. When you're going from the injury report, it's essentially who needs to know what and why. And so kind of learning that green, yellow, red, black type system from Spoon is something that I've carried with me everywhere I've gone. And a lot of places have a version of that. And it just depends on how you make it fit into what you need. And if you look at the first injury report, I think I probably sent out in my time at Yale compared to the last one, it was definitely different. There were different things that you and I had those conversations where you were like, I don't, I don't care about this. I don't need to know this. And then it was like, but X, Y, or Z would be super helpful to have on there. And it's like, okay, great. So you change it, you modify it. And I think, again, I think the injury report that I would send out in say February, where it's so weight room and training dominant, as opposed to field dominant. And what I would send out in November or October was different again there because of the needs and the demands of who needs to know what is so different. Um, and I think, again, the goal there is I think a lot of people look at the injury report, especially younger athletic trainers, as a way of replacing face-to-face -face communication, but that's, that's not what it is. It's designed to quickly disseminate information to a large number of people, be it coaching staff, equipment staff, team physicians, other staff athletic trainers, strength and conditioning coaches, anybody and everybody who's involved in kind of the day-to-day -day of that student athlete to get them that quick information. And then when you have those face-to-face -face conversations, you're able to dive deeper into it. But with that, if there's not the chance to have that conversation, that sheet should be able to give somebody the information that they need to do their job. You know, so when, and when we look at it, you know, if you have a guy who's say non-contact at practice and they're supposed to be in a non-contact Jersey, whether that's a yellow or red Jersey or wherever you're at, what they use, you know, I should go talk to the equipment manager and say, hey, this guy needs to be in a non-contact jersey today. But if for some reason I can't get there, he should be able to look at the injury report and see that, oh, this guy's in a yellow jersey, right? I should be able to talk to you up in the weight room and say, 
hey, this is what this guy's got going on. I don't think he could press today. I think he could pull and he could hammer his lower body, but we got to stay away from the pressing stuff. If I don't have the chance to get up to you, the injury report should be able to convey that message. And so it doesn't replace communication. It just helps supplement the communication, I think. And, you know, again, especially every sport's a little different. If you look at a softball program or, you know, a, a sport with a coaching staff of three or four people, one strength and conditioning coach, one athletic trainer, and maybe an equipment manager, a team manager involved. Like it's, it's very different than having 10 position coaches, four strength and conditioning coaches, three equipment managers, four athletic trainers, 15 team managers. Like it's, it's very different in the football world of disseminating that information. Yeah. And I think we saw that a little bit too in strength and conditioning is that if I'm covering your lift and you know, you call it a squat, cool. That means something to you in your individual silo in your brain, but it could be a barbell squat. It could be a barbell back squat. It could be a barbell front squat. It could be actually a kettlebell squat. Like, so there's an implement. And so the ontology and language you use is so important. I think it gets often overlooked. If I look at that injury report and I remember, you know, working with other coaches and, you know, I see something that's like good to go, just no core conditioning. What is core conditioning? I, I don't know. Could you define that? And so I think if you ever get a moment where I, I don't, I don't know what it is, like, can you tell me one athletic trainer slash other person? Don't get mad that I asked because it's good that I actually reached out because I know clearly something was important that you put a note here, but on the flip side, was it called something else? And the problem with strength and conditioning, especially if you're working, I don't know, five or six teams, if one athletic trainer says one thing, someone else says another, conversely, strength and conditioning, you know, we, we do it this way, we do it that way, getting that ontology to be universal. So it's like, oh, yep, no core conditioning means, you know, axial loading, or it means no crunching or whatever the thing is. Um, because at the end of the day, who, who's the one who's going to get hurt? You know, who's the one who's not going to benefit from this? This is the athlete. So if you come back to why are you doing what you're doing, then, you know, it, it should make you be able to leave your ego at the door and to get to that point. And I think, you know, as an administrator, yeah, when someone comes to you with a question, it's not questioning your authority. It's just saying, hey, I don't understand. But then also, so you don't have that conversation every week. Moving forward, we're going to call it this. Or as you said on the injury report, I'm going to add that. And there's a natural iteration. A lot of people will say, this is messed up or this is this sucks. Okay, cool. But how are you going to fix it? And not even 100%, but just let's get it better every day, every day. So yeah, at the end of three years, that injury report is pretty dialed in for everybody that needs to be involved. And again, what's your foundation why you're doing this is because it's what's best for the athletes. And so again, I think that'd be super important uh, for people to think about. But I want, I want to dive even deeper on that because again, in football... As you mentioned, it's a very unique sport of contact, uh, so acute and then chronic injuries as well. Talk to me about ACLs. And I know, I know, every ACL is different, but we did have some milestones and there were some specific things that you did. And I know after speaking with Dr. Kramer and some of the other coaches, there was actually some real wisdom into the way that, you know, you handled those and, and the way that you interacted with us. Can you just walk through with everybody some of your thoughts or milestones um, on ACLs? I don't remember how many we did, but I know we didn't have retairs. Um, and so I think people would love to hear that kind of that process. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll preface that. But like you said, every every 
ACL is different. There's, oh, there's you athletic trainers love that. <laughs> you love it. And there's, and there's a lot of people that have done hundreds and hundreds more ACLs than me and, and physical therapists that have trained for years and years to be able to handle these things and stuff like that. And so, you know, in, in, in my time, I've grown a lot and changed a lot in the way that I treat an ACL tear and the way that I progress somebody from an ACL tear and um, the rehab process with it. And, and I think there's a lot of people that I've learned from, and there's a lot of people who do things a lot better than me, but at the same time, you know, like you said, I, I've had exposure to working, I think in that collaborative environment about an ACL tear a lot. Um, I, I think, you know, for me, it's getting more and more objective with, with what you're able to do, I think is the way that these things are going, obviously, you know, for years and years, PTs have been using the objective data and one of the downfalls of athletic trainers forever has been, you know, you have an athletic training room and you don't necessarily have all that stuff. And so you need to rely on some other areas to do that. But now we're changing and we're getting these things in the athletic training room. We're getting the ability to do more objective things and, and whatnot. Um, but I think a, a big part of a rehab progression from an ACL is for an athletic trainer to be comfortable being in the weight room with an athlete and with a, with a patient. And I think if, if you have, limited resources in the athletic training room. You can't be afraid to take somebody into a weight room and, and work with a strength and conditioning coach and collaboratively progress somebody. You know, for me, I, I'm a big fan of trap bars as opposed to a barbell before somebody can move right. And you got to progress somebody through that process there. But I think, I think a huge thing that changed my ability to rehab and progress an ACL is once I got more comfortable being in the weight room and working with strength and conditioning coaches to, to use the modalities that are present there, as opposed to just in the athletic training room. Now, some places have a rack in the athletic training room. I think that's awesome. I love those places. I think if you could put something like that in there and use that from a rehab standpoint, I think that's great. But I think, you know, stressing to the, to the patient that, you know, some things are going to be uncomfortable. You know, there's certain things that we look for as risks that we're not going to push through. And I tell every guy, as soon as he starts that process, I, I tell him, Hey, if something doesn't feel right or feel normal or something hurts or, or it feels weird, like I want you to tell me, and there's going to be plenty of times where I, where I just say, okay, got it. And we keep doing what we're doing, or there's going to be times where you tell me something I'm like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta pump the brakes here and, and dig a little bit deeper into this. And so I think once they get that layer of trust that, I'm not going to put you in a position to hurt yourself. We're going to hopefully put you in a position to progress and get back to your previous level of play, which with an ACL tear is now almost second nature, you know, but I think, I think laying that trust layer and then showing him that everybody involved in that from us in the athletic training room and, and strength and conditioning staff is and the performance staff is, is on that same page. But um, yeah, there's a lot of specifics and a lot of different ways to kind of dive into that, that we can go any direction you want here. But I think um everyone, everyone's different. <laughs> every position's different, has different demands and every athlete's different, but there are, there are the golden rules that you, that you follow with the ACL. But I think it's the, the way that I've grown the most is using those different modalities in the weight room and, and being comfortable progressing somebody back into those things. Um, and recognizing that different positions are, you know, maybe a, a lineman could do some things in the weight room before a wide receiver could, but maybe a wide receiver could do some things on the field before a lineman could. And it's kind of, there's, there's no cut and dry, like at three months, this guy does, everybody does this. No, at three months, this guy's doing X, this guy's doing Y. And it's just, it's, what are the goals? What are we looking for? 
you know, what is the, what is the person's goals, right? Is this guy trying to get back to compete for a spot on an NFL roster? Is this guy trying to, is this guy trying to put his best effort forward for his senior year of college, knowing that he's never going to play football again after that? Or like, what, what are we working towards here? Or is somebody a senior who realistically has no intention of returning to the field? They want to do what they can to be a part of the team. And then once they graduate, they move on to bigger and better things. It's kind of figuring out where somebody fits into that, how hard you push them, what you work on with them primarily and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I see the wheels turning. So you got something to say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just gonna come out and say it because I know you you have to do your part. I'm gonna do mine. Is that I know so on an injury, people don't realize it's a mental injury as much as it is a physical. So when I remember we get individuals, and this goes for anything, but take ACL. The first two weeks, and they they go to surgery or whatever, or the prep before, it's fine. Kind of give them space, but we got to work right away. And so taking that time, so when they're doing their kind of call it, I'll call them phases or milestones or whatever, that first phase is what's our nutrition like? At some point, there's going to be atrophy. So can I really, really dial in the nutrition for later on? If I'm thinking about vitamin D, I'm thinking about protein, thinking about collagen, thinking about anything that I can do to create an environment for growth, because no matter what the injury is, there's a remodeling phase. But if I take someone dehydrated, not sleeping, not, you know, properly squared away, and just call it all things nutrition, that's not good. So that was a huge focal point. The other part was, and I know people go back and forth on this, is you would green light them to go for upper bodies. So we would do, you know, seated. So seated uppers, meaning that they couldn't get up and around, especially if they're in a brace or they're cast or whatever the thing is. So again, they would be red and an athletic trainer or strength coach would be there and hand them their weights. But for an athlete to get back under the bar, I think the quicker you can get them back under the bar, <clears throat> the better the long-term outcome because they're in the doldrums. It's super uncomfortable. They're getting stretched. There's soft tissue stuff. It's just in general kind of sucks. And, and they still might be feeling sorry for themselves. And again, as you mentioned, their psychological makeup of how it happened, was it a big game? Was it the start of this? Was it at the preseason, you know, with the pandemic and an individual who waits this whole pandemic to finally get a shot to get back on the field and they're taken out in camp, you got to treat that differently than someone who went down, you know, but making a great heroic play. So knowing the psychology, but get, get them back under the bar. And I think the other thing is, is that we remember is that we think about testosterone or any of the, and you know, the androgen systems, it's global, right? So if I can get someone to do their back or chest or whatever, one, it's just strictly speaking on the male side, cool, time for uppers, biceps, shoulders, whatever, just things that guys like anyway. But to think that there is a systemic hormonal effect that's going to help them be in an anabolic state for growth and repair, I think is massive. Um, and so that would run its course. The next phase, and again, everybody different, and whether it was three months or four months, was it, you would do such a good job is it that's actually the kind of the most dangerous zone because i don't hurt anymore i feel good so i remember saying you screw this up now month four month three whatever the time is i can't undo that at month eight or nine or in year one or two because again you're dealing with you know repair and modeling of ligaments is different than muscles but once it's screwed and it's stretched or it's torn or you know whatever that was kind of that danger zone in the weight room, if you're a strength coach and you're listening, those are the guys that you have to really watch that casually bend down to pick up the 100-pound plates. It's the casually go to spot their friend at 405. And 
really, really watching for their athletes' own safety of making sure that they understand and give them hard things to do, but really keep an eye on them. Um, because if you if you screw that time up, it, it, everything's for loss and, and it's going to really impact the long term outcome. And then that last phase is when you mentioned the position specific things of a lineman, a high speed individual, and this could go for soccer, it could go DB, wide receiver, whatever, cleats or no cleats, turf or grass. Uh, is it in the winter and they slipped off a curb? It, are they in a boot and they get stuck in a deep hole and then they pivot? So things outside of the sport, really having those conversations. And I know for us, we would always try to play the under in the weight room. So if everybody was doing, say, a lot of legs on one day, but that individual we also know has a lot of, say, field work with you, tone it back. Because the other thing is for the athlete psychologically, making the first catch, or I remember talking with you about the getting hit the first time, there's going to be a little, I'm not so sure about this. So do not create interference. Do not create doubt in the athlete because they're in a fatigue state going into it. And that focus should be there. So again, from phase one to phase two and heading into phase three, knowing who's pushing what, but being an absolute lockstep. And so those are kind of the ways when I think about our ACLs that we did is just really making sure that we knew when individuals were in each phase. And if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, that makes common sense, go pick anybody on your staff and see if they are 100% in agreement with the athletic trainer on what should the focal point should be. So I think focus is the most important thing on any of the rehabs is that the staff, independent of themselves, can all be in agreement on what is this person's actual goal today in the training room or in the weight room. So that's my more long-winded, more direct answer on that. But I think it's critical because a lot of time, I don't know, they're down in training. I don't know. They're up in the weight room. I don't know. I don't know. They got it covered. That's not my job. Anytime you work with an athlete, it's your job. Their athletes entrusting you with their body, and, and you should try to do your best to make sure that they are in the best possible position for success. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you brought up a couple points there that that are paramount to kind of hammer home is that first one that you mentioned was, was the nutrition and kind of looking at that full full aspect of everything that goes into it. You know, I think for for us in the situation that we were out there, it was kind of a you know it was my staff and your staff, and we were trying to figure all those things out ourselves. You know, at a place like when you get to those, those power five programs, those different places, you know, here at Arizona, we have what we call our high performance team. And it's, it's our athletic trainers, training and conditioning coaches, our dietetic staff, our mental health staff. And it's, we have in season, it's almost daily out of season. It's two times a week, maybe three times, depending on where we're at. And like, we run through those injured guys and we run through problem guys and we run through these cases and it's, Hey, this guy's having surgery tomorrow. He's going to meet with you in dietetics the day beforehand, you know, mental health will meet with you a week after like, like everybody has their role and everybody needs to know what we're working towards for a certain guy. And so if you attack all those different angles, you're going to set somebody up for success. And I think you can do that with whatever resources you have. It's just figuring out how to do it where you're at and everywhere is a little bit different. And I think, you know, the next thing you talked about was when to get a guy back into the weight room. Like if a guy has surgery for me, the second he's not on pain meds for a day or so, he, he's back in there. Like you don't want somebody lifting when they're all, when they're on, on their pain meds post-surgery. But the second that a guy is off of that and he's fully cognitively available to go work out, like, yeah, we're going. And even if that means you're picking up 15 pound dumbbells and you're doing some seated bicep curls, like you're doing something, you're getting the blood flowing, you're getting some sweat, like you're going to start working out again. And I think that shifts their mindset from 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an injured athlete. I'm an athlete who has some restrictions and then there's, there's a difference there as you progress somebody back into everything. Um, and I think that's the next part too, is there's no like defined line that says I'm done with you in athletic training. You're now with strength and conditioning, you know, following a major injury, like that overlap, that gray area takes place for a year, 18 months sometimes where it's, you know, it's super athletic training dominant on one side, you progress, and then maybe it's 80 athletic training, 20 strength and conditioning. And then that shift continues to go until, you know, it's like, Hey man, you don't, you don't have to be in the athletic training room every day. You could do your maintenance work and stuff, but you're doing everything on the field. You're doing everything in the weight room. Like, let me know if you need anything. And it kind of, it, it shifts to that, but there's no, there's no line that says you're not, me anymore your your strength and conditioning and performance it's it's no it's it's always that overlap it's hey this guy's struggling with this in the athletic training room i think we got to hammer volume like he needs volume in the way room. it's like yep got it cool and you could you could rotate there or hey this guy was doing great with us but when he started doing this exercise up here with us when he was doing his lunges we noticed that he goes crazy into valgus on that bad knee like what do we need to do in the athletic training room to help with that it's like perfect that helps guide our rehab and our treatments a little bit and it's that back and forth and once when that guy comes down for rehab after walking out of the weight room and i'm like hey we're going to focus on your glute today because it sounds like you were having some issues at your hip up in the weight room like their mindset switched like oh they talk yeah like they know what's going on <laughs> they have those conversations and they're a team and they they work together to keep me safe and that's that's huge that, that trust is is everything i can't tell you the number of times hey did you talk to you, you did talk to paul <laughs> hey did you talk to strength and conditioning yeah yeah of course you guys did. yeah 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 by the time you've already made it to the fourth floor i've already got the text message i know exactly what's going on and vice versa and, and again i think at first you know as you said it wasn't you know, it wasn't always like that, or at least for our guys, they hadn't seen that. But then I think they also, when they knew that they didn't have to ask anymore, they bought into it. I mean, like you said, the number of times guys would be done, quote unquote, done with their rehab, but they still want to come down. In fact, they then start taking ownership with the younger kids to say, hey, you better come in. And this is how we act. Like the the athletic training room and the weight room are sometimes... Uh, places where the athletes can go and kind of relax <clears throat> and, and you would assume in general that people like to lift people like to you know feel good um <clears throat> but they would put in work so when we had saturday school and you'd see that nobody would go and then it was like 35 40 people would go athletic training you know crickets you know nobody's showing up but you know if i put in an investment in myself and in my team for five minutes a day compound effect over the course of a semester how much better can i be and then also too <clears throat> how much better can i make practice in the people around me so i would always i always laugh with that um i got a question for you on that training when we talk about the the back and forth why is it and specifically as it relates to athletic training is it equipment or is it um maybe not a, have as much experience you mentioned you have your cscs one thing that was unique about you is we would start to go heavy pretty quickly. And I say pretty quickly as in like six months to a year, whether it's heavy upper bodies, if they had a lower body injury, or even you mentioned the trap. And I can already hear the little keyboard warriors getting fired up about trap bar, straight bar, this bar, all the bars. Um, but the point was, is that you would come up into the weight room and start loading them and we would rack pull them or we would squat them to a specific depth. Because again, maybe they they had a surgery that if impacted the range of motions, we we're trying to work through it. 
why does athletic training really not go heavy? And we see the classic three by 10, three by 15, but we're not really recruiting the large motor units, which is what you're going to use anyway in sport. And again, I get there's a place and a time, but I don't really remember the last time I see athletic training getting into wave sets of, you know, the eight, six, four, or the 80%, 85, 90%. But yet then someone can be cleared to go out and participate in an event where they're going to shift and cut at three times their body weight or engage in another person. What do you think? Is that an education thing? Is it a comfort thing? Or am I just misreading it? No, I think there's a lot of different things there. I think, you know, for me personally, I learned a lot from, from some of the PTs I've worked with in the past that, you know, I think early in my career, if I was rehabbing somebody post-surgery, I, I was overly cautious. And I think I learned that, you know, especially when it comes to ACLs and stuff, you know, you need to be cautiously aggressive, which sounds kind of counterintuitive, but you need to, you need to know what you can load and how you could load it because you need to get strength. You know, you can't, you need to prevent atrophy. It's going to happen, but you need to, you need to continue to build strength. That's how somebody progresses. And so I think I learned early, early, not early in my career, but like midway through my career up to this point, working with some of the PTs that I've worked with, it's, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm rehabbing this injury this way. And I look at somebody else and see how they're doing it. And I'm like, wow, they got way, like they're doing way more weight than my person is or like what what am I doing different how can I change what I'm doing and so it it was essentially speaking with people that I trust and people that I know and figuring out what different ways I could load somebody to continue to prevent that atrophy and build that strength and I think you know obviously it depends on the goal of what what you're working for right so if if we have somebody who's a chronic hamstring guy and he has another hamstring strain and it always seems to happen you know midway to three quarters of the way through practice, like, you know, hitting him with, with three by four or something like that for that, that heavy strength, it may be different. Maybe we need to hit this guy with 15 to 20 reps and we need to get him in a super fatigued state to help train him in that environment, as opposed to the, the strength. And so it's figuring out what, what a certain guy needs and how best to implement it. But I think there's, it, it's getting the exposure and, and working with somebody when you load them and not them not getting hurt and you learning like, Oh, I, I can do that. Like I can start to progress this person. I can start to load them up. And, you know, you see, I, I'm a big fan of, I don't like somebody doing something with somebody for the first time. If I haven't seen them do it with me myself, you know, and I think that's a huge part of the rehab thing where, you know, if somebody's coming back to, even if it's just an ankle sprain and somebody has been out for three or four days, it happens on Saturday, you're trying to get them ready for that next Saturday if I don't see them run with me, I'm not going to have them go run at practice on Tuesday. Like, no, I, I need to see you run with me and to make sure that you're safe before you go run with your position group. And it's the same thing with that where I need to see you in a loaded state in, in the weight room before I'm comfortable not seeing you in the weight room when you're loading. And so it takes, it takes kind of that experience of recognizing how you load somebody, when you load somebody. And again, it's different for everybody, but like, the, the comfort of knowing like, Oh, if I put, if I put 135 pounds on this guy's back, he's not, he's not going to fall apart. Like he's not going to get hurt. And I think that's also a switch in, in the athlete's mind of like, Oh, I can do these things. Like I can continue to load. I can continue to get stronger. Um, and I think that that's hopefully I, I've seen that switch a little bit more in, in some of the students that I work with um, the past couple of years, where I think some of the education is changing a little bit in athletic training um, but I think when you're a young clinician, and I think this would go for probably most health professionals, it's, you know, your first goal is to not make somebody worse. Like you panic that you're going to make something worse. 
you know, and I, as I've gotten more experience and I'm still, I still consider myself to be very early in my career, but like, if there's been times where I'm like, Hey, let's try this. And the guy's like, that was terrible. That did not feel good. And you're like, Oh, guess we shouldn't do that one again. <laughs> you kind of learn how, how to do those things. And as long as you're not putting somebody in a situation that they're going to get catastrophically injured, or they're going to make themselves worse. Like it, it's okay to try something like, no, is a month out of ACL surgery. Am I going to put a guy on a, on a hop and have him just jump and see how he feels with it? No, but maybe we could put a little bit more weight on during that certain exercise and see how he responds to it. Um, and I think that's, that's an important part of it is, is that patient feedback that, you know, yeah, that felt good. That was easy. Like, okay. Then if it wasn't hard, then we need to go harder. Like it needs, you need progressive overload. And I think that's the hardest part for young clinicians to get is, like, yes, that, that five pound ankle weight and, and three or four sets of 10 may have been difficult two weeks ago, but it's not anymore. Like you need to continue to progressively load that and continue to move that forward. That's a great point. And I know from a strength and conditioning standpoint, we would always talk about, you know, bringing somebody back, put them in a supported position. So that could be a Smith machine cable slash something that's going to control movements other than what they need to focus on so just think of a leg extension the open chain the closed chain type stuff the other thing is stacking the bone so from a vertical standpoint things that don't have a lot of torque tend to go better so literally you can see how they do with a shrug um, and then you can lower the pin so i can play with uh, the angle of the bone um, to go uh, and, and be safe the next thing is reps in reserve I would ask athletes all the time, you know, it's the classic joke of like, what, what way is more, you know, a pound of feathers or a pound of uh, gold. Oh, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. Well, 10 reps or five reps. I can make both of those hard. I can make both of them, you know, impossible. So, you know, if you want to hit something for 10, use an intensity for that, but just do six or seven. And you, so you can climb up your reps in reserve rather than having to try to push absolute intensity. And so those are some of the things. And as you mentioned, you might have a freak that just heals fast. I remember, you know, polys heal fast, you know, they start thinking about, you know, they just genetically people are different and you do want to push them forward because undertraining someone is just as bad as overtraining them. And the undertraining being what is the demands of their game? If you're not, if you're not comfortable with something, and I would say this to strength as well, know what you know. And more importantly, know what you don't know. And you actually look way more intelligent when you refer out, say, hey, I need help with this. Or you know what? I've done this progression this way. Um, I don't feel comfortable doing this or I'm not quite sure. No one's going to ever fault you because, again, what did you do? You put the athlete's health and safety before your ego. And that is super, super important, but often overlooked. And I think that's that's a huge thing that you talked about there is, you know, knowing that everybody's different, how to treat those guys and and kind of how do you, the, the reps and reserve and the RPE and all those different things, like the more objective data and the more, the more things that you could document that you use to assess where somebody is, the better you're going to set yourself up because, you know, yes, we have these timelines that we try to hit and there's these super freaks that ruin it for everybody. You have the Adrian Peterson with the six month ACL who every high school kid that tears his ACL thinks he's coming back in six months. And now you have, who's it? Emmanuel Akers with the, the Achilles that came back in like three or four months. Like, that now every kid tears his Achilles thinks he's going to come back in three or four months. And, and yes, you, you're going to have guys that are, are pretty damn close to going at seven months or eight months. 
And that's a really hard thing to come to because you have so many reservations about a guy doing that. But if you have all this objective data and you could show, hey, his force plate output is this, his, you know, his, his 1080 speed is this, his, his catapult data shows that like if you have all these different things and then you could go to that physician and you could say hey listen like this guy checked all of these boxes and he's only at eight months like what are we thinking like can we go like where are we at are you intentionally going to slow play somebody because you're not at a certain timeline when they already have every single box checked and then, so that's where all that stuff comes into play and, and that was you know a big thing that i learned from working with you was a kind of readiness to go type thing in the weight room where you would you would have the guys jump you would have the guys tell you how they're feeling that day and you would slot them into different areas and different programs and different ways to move that day like i you know we use that in, in the in the athletic training room where it's you know just because you have a plan hey this is what you're doing monday tuesday you could prepare as much as you want for the week from a rehab standpoint and you could say i want this guy to do x y and z this week, but then he comes in one day and his knees a little swollen. He's super fatigued. He doesn't feel good that day. Well, all right, how do you adjust? Move on to the next day, change something, move him forward and do something different. But I think the more data that you could collect about a readiness to perform and then also a return to play standpoint, like you're just going to set yourself up for success because you're going to have that seven month guy. You're going to have that 10 month guy. You're going to have that 14 month guy. You're going to have people that have these different areas and different timelines. And, and how do you move them forward correctly and safely? Yeah. I think, you know, you bring up a great point there and obviously I work at a tech company. Um, and so I, I'm kind of privy to using that in my practical application um, but it's so critical now. I mean, stuff that we can see on the plates when we talk a lot of, as you mentioned, usually um, the milestones or hot progressions or strength numbers, they're usually output drivers. So this person is this strong, but they're, you know, say bench press, but their butt was up in the air. They were flaring out. They actually got raging bicep tendonitis. So yes, you got the outcome that you were shooting for, but that strategy isn't really good. And I find myself, and again, I'm blessed to be around some of the world experts um, you know, in our, in our platform to be able to go and say, what, what is the time to take off? You know, what does it mean when a counter movement death has been cut by 50%, you know, and then we also see that, you know, there's a shift occurring, they still got output. And sometimes we see people that actually even jump higher, but we start to see these strategies and you're like, Hmm, I don't need to be a genius to realize that if this trend continues, um, you know, there's a low likelihood you're going to make it through the season. And I think that's another thing is it, you know, and whether it's sport coaches, strength coaches or whoever, well, that's fine. We've been doing this for this, this way for years. Okay. So you're using anecdotal historical evidence, not this individual, not this person as it relates to them today here in the now we have a diagnostic tool that's kind of showing us something else. And I wasn't sure as a clinician, because my eyes are ultimately going to make the final call. But if I have that data, it's your responsibility to then pivot and adjust or have a sudden change and say, hey, you know what? Today was supposed to be a super hard day. We're gonna go lighter today. But when I get those days on Thursday, oh, I thought you'd be tired. No, they're good to go, let's throttle it up. And sometimes we'd even set a PR on a day that was supposed to be a light day. And that's okay, because that's the progression of the industry is knowing how to individualize the dosing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, we, we, we've covered a bunch of different things about us. 
But now as we kind of shift in the role of mentorship, and I know you had a bunch of individuals uh, under you at Yale, and I'm sure now out at Arizona, um, I was fortunate enough to have a ton of interns that have gone on to do some successful things uh, in their careers. What are some of the things that you're teaching this kind of next generation, both A, either at the drill, exercise, or case study, and then also, you know, what's your, your hope that, you know, if they spend six months with you, what do they walk away with? So on a micro level and a macro level. Yeah, I mean, so here, here at University of Arizona, we don't have an undergraduate or a graduate athletic training program, but we, we serve as a kind of immersive clinical site for a couple of different programs across the country um, and trying to continue to build that relationship with, with some more programs. Um, I think one of the things that I do like a lot about the entry-level master switch in athletic training is that we're having these, uh, these students who, rather than living somewhere and going to school somewhere and you go to that clinical site every day or a couple of days a week, you know, we're moving to this site where for a semester, you're going to have a clinically immersive experience. You're going to, you're going to be in that athletic training room every day. You're going to take a couple online classes and do your didactic work that way. But at the same time, like you are trying to learn how to function as a certified athletic trainer. And I think I like that a lot because we have these students here that are coming in green and, and rather than getting three years or four years of clinical experience they're getting two but maybe a quarter to a half of that is like fully immersive you're in the trenches every day learning what we do you don't make the decisions every day and you don't do those things but you're involved in everything you're functioning as a member of our staff and so we try to to bring them in to as much of those higher level conversations as we can when we sit down and we run through the injury report, we try to have our students in here so they learn what's happening and why we're progressing certain people. When I walk into the weight room during our lifts to help with some run injured guys and progress them and keep an eye on them, like I'm bringing in a student with me so they could see what that's like. And I think my goal is to put clinicians out there that don't want to work in a silo. They're, they're against that athletic training only model and they know how to work with strength and conditioning coaches, mental health providers, team physicians, orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, like you're, you're part of a performance team and you're learning how to work as an athletic trainer, but you're also learning how that athletic trainer fits into the role of the bigger team. And I think that's something that I didn't get a lot of when I was in in an undergrad and going through my clinical experiences, like, yeah, you do the grunt work, you set up the practice field, you fill the water bottles, you clean the athletic training and you do all those things. And that's kind of that old school. Well, I had to do it. So you have to do it too kind of thing. And that's, that is what it is, but there's certain things that need to get done. And if they're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. But it, you know, it's, it's, it's that exposure to what, in my opinion, that next level of athletic training is, which is, not just working with the student athlete on a day-to-day -day basis. Like, yes, I'm going to teach you how to rehab an AC sprain. I'm going to treat you how to and evaluate an ankle and her knee. I'm going to treat you how to progress a concussion and different, different tools that we use for that. But at the same time, I'm going to teach you how to be a member of a performance team and how you now take athletic training. If your goal is to work in collegiate football, I'm going to teach you how to be an athletic trainer in collegiate football. Right. If your goal is to work in a physician setting, maybe you shouldn't do an immersive experience in Division One collegiate football. Right. So it's kind of teaching somebody the ins and outs of this particular area of athletic training is a goal of mine, as long as that fits with what they're looking for. Um, and I 
I think the, the hard part too, is you got to earn the right to do those things. Like it's, you know, people say all the time, the fair, not equal kind of thing. Like the second somebody comes in here, their first day on the job as an immersive student, you know, I'm not going to bring them into that meeting with the strength and conditioning coach. I'm not going to bring them into those things. Like you need to show me that you have the emotional intelligence and you have that growth mindset and you have that humility to be in those meetings and possibly provide, you know, good feedback to somebody as opposed to sitting there and asking an inappropriate question or not knowing when to keep your mouth shut and those kinds of things. And, and I think, you know, again, that's, that's something that I didn't have a lot of exposure to in undergrad. And so I realized that when I first got into the clinic and was practicing as an athletic trainer, that was something that I wasn't super comfortable with and I needed to get better at. So my goal is to put people out there and they could say, Hey, I worked with Paul at this at, you know, university of Arizona or Boise state or Yale. And, you know, he exposed me to these different things. So now when I'm a first year clinician, you know, I'm going to go into those meetings and I'm going to be comfortable. Cause I think that's where, especially in the collegiate setting, like it, it's not a silo anymore. Like it was 10 years ago. And I think it's, it's different even than it was a couple years ago where it's now, like, if you want to succeed, you got to be part of this team. You got to be able to work with every other individual and see what that looks like from a successful, successful side. Yeah. It's definitely moving towards the model of um, I think about like integrated medicine where everybody's bringing in their specialty, but athletic training is unique in that they're going to be the point for the specialist, for the general med, for, you know, strength and conditioning. And, and someone's always got to be, you know, the advocate. And I think, when you're not ready for those situations and if you ask a young athletic trainer or even strength coach you know what do you think how do you think this is going to go down well i'm going to walk in and i'm going to tell the coach exactly how it's going down i've got my gps data and we're going to sit the following three no 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 that's not going to happen you know you're going to sit down and you're going to tell the athlete they're going to exactly do these reps and sets there, there's a there is an emotional intelligence to read the room to read the individual you're working with that takes time. We, we know that it took between 500 and 800 hours of floor time in the internship program for strength and conditioning to even be ready to handle some of the harder details. And it's funny is that all the, I can do more, I can do more. I mean, it would be so funny is that now I talk to some of those individuals from two, three years ago, they're like, we wouldn't have been ready. We didn't even, we didn't even, we were so worried about you know, if our rack was set up, we didn't realize that, you know, the building was on fire outside the door or that, you know, someone was having a meltdown or, you know, whatever. And I think as an administrator, everyone's different, but also too, it's a progression. And then there can also be a regression. If you aren't ready or you blow something up, you go in and tell a coach to go, you know, pound sand and they just don't like you as a person. It doesn't matter as a, as a professional, what you say, if they just don't get along with you. So making sure that they see how it's done appropriately, um, but realizing that it takes time to marinate. It's not a flip of the switch. So those are really good points. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think off of that, it's, you, you see that a lot where you have somebody who they, they are so didactically driven or so clinic or they're school driven that, you know, they get to a point where you're at practice and you're like, this is what this guy has going on. This is what we're doing with him today. And like, well, should he be doing that? Like I learned in school that if they have X, Y, or Z, they shouldn't be doing that. And it's like, well, yeah, we're going to see how he goes today. And it's that difference between what you learn in school, what you see in the, cl the clinic and what you see in the real world environment. And it's just so, it's so different that, you know, you need that floor time. You need that exposure to be able to, to learn how to do that. Um, I think a big thing for me, I didn't touch on earlier that I try to teach a lot of my students is, you know, when you talk about that emotional intelligence, it's kind of 
how and when to ask questions and, and how and when to present that information. Like you talk about, you go into a coach's meeting and you tell this guy, hey, he can't do this. And he, you know, catapult data says that this guy has to sit. Well, then that coach looks at you and goes, well, okay, then, then what? Like, if you don't have a solution already in your head before you go into that meeting, like you're putting yourself in a bad situation. You know, when I was a sophomore in undergrad, I had a clinical a preceptor at Emerson College who every day when I walked in, we had a, we have had a question. Like, it didn't matter. Like, the second you walked in the door, it's like, hey, what's your clinical question today? And I used to take the tea to get there, and I would sit on the tea, and I'd have my book open, and I'd be, like, just flipping pages and be like, what could I ask him about today? And I realized, like, that was the dumbest way to go about that. And so halfway through that semester, I would start paying more attention and look at something that happened the day before or earlier in the week. And I'd formulate a question before I even left that day for the next day. And I'd go home and I'd look some stuff up and I'd try to have a solution for it. So when I presented that question and I said, hey, this is what I wanted to ask about today. This is what I found. Like, how does this fit with what you're doing and all those different things? And I think that sets you up for when you have those conversations with the coaches. So when I walked up to you and I said, hey, this guy can't squat today. It wasn't like it's up to you to figure like. I know you can, but at the same time, it's like, I think, what if we do X, Y, and Z? Like, you got to have a solution to a problem that you're kind of creating, essentially, if that makes sense. Like, you can't tell a coach to go pound sand because a guy can't do X, Y, or Z and not have A, B, or C for him to do instead. You got to have something else. There has to be a solution already formulated by the time you have those conversations. Yeah, and I, I don't think people understand how important that was because I can think of several instances of – this person needs to go light today. So I'm like, okay, well, they benched 315. So we'll go light. We'll go 60% of 315. Meanwhile, they're coming off whatever procedure or whatever, you know, just ripping out a couple 225s, 240, something like that. Oh my God, we say go light. Well, what's light? Well, 20, that's not light. That's like, so it's give me the number. I don't care. And I remember, well, that's your tear. We don't want to step, step all over my toes. Like if you're a strength coach, wear steel toe boots, do whatever you got to do. But like, give the number and and athlete the best thing would be the athlete comes in say it's 185 to whatever the number is that was easy that's perfect that's what i want to say because then i'm going to go back to paul he's going to say all right go do 220 because we can't undo reps you know and and i love how you said you know you and i forget you can't squat today but they can go pit shark and they can go up to 500 pounds 800 pounds and and sometimes it might be arbitrary like you're just gonna make a call it's not a white paper research situation just knowing the athlete making the call but then for strength and conditioning go do that to the best of the ability get the athlete fired up for their 15 pound dumbbell curl because you know last week they weren't even in the weight room so working hand in hand and, and really you know providing that solution because like you said it, it is a disruptor that you know you can't you know you can't do what your original plan was well what they should just sit and that doesn't really end up well. And you can only do that so many times before I think you then get questioned of like, well, what, what is this guy really doing? Because sitting out of training or sitting out of practice, they're going to fall behind because they're not getting a training stimulus. And sometimes it's warranted. But if you're doing it all the time and you're crying wolf, what do we do when they have a, a you know, a banged up elbow, but they got to play in this game? Is it really that bad? Is it going to hurt them? Is it painful or is it going to hurt them? And I just, you build your credibility in the off season. And I think that often gets overlooked. So kind of just rounding out here. Um, I know we talk a lot about just kind of the culture and the life and, you know, anyone that's ever met you, uh, what are some things that you do outside? I know you like dogs. I know you've got an incredible beard game. It is awe-inspiring for, for those of you who don't know, Paul has a beard that is 
is right up there with some of the best I've ever seen. Talk to me a little bit about what do you do to fill your time um, when you're not in the athletic training room or doing that kind of stuff? What do you do to kind of try to have a work-life balance um, in your in your life? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, um, recently, like about a year or two ago, kind of towards the end of the pandemic when I was in Boise, started to get a lot more into like woodworking uh, and working with my hands and doing stuff like that, you know, owning it bought a house in Boise when we moved to Tucson and bought a house here. And I think, I think the thing I learned when you, when you own something like that is like, you gotta be able to fix stuff. And that's something that I haven't been super good at in my life. So I've tried to learn how to work with my hands, be more handy. Um, you know, not afraid to screw something up, I guess. So like, Hey, my sink's clogged and I can't figure it out. YouTube it and try to figure out how to do it myself instead of just calling a landlord or something like that. So I uh, tried to get way more into, into hand handy type stuff. So woodworking, built some tables, built some furniture and things like that. Um, kind of the smaller stuff, like, like whittling a little bit and trying to get better with stuff like that, be a little bit crafty, um, trying to learn patience, I guess, when you put something together and it's not exactly what you thought it would be and going back. So I'm um, trying to get more and more into that. Um, out here in Tucson, it's a really, so never lived in the desert until I got here and didn't really know what to expect, but there's a lot of mountains, a lot of hiking trails and stuff like that. So my wife and I try to get out there and explore outside a little bit as well. But, um, if I have downtime, I'm, I'm typically trying to do something from a woodworking standpoint and, and get a little bit better at something like that. How many more dogs are in your future? Uh, three, three is the limit for right now. I think we're Tell everybody about out. the type of dogs you got. These are not small little chihuahuas. These are not like your average size dogs. Talk to us a little bit about your pups. Yeah, so we got a we got a boxer plot hound mix. He's about seventy pounds. He's our old man, at about ten years old. Uh, we got a little Spitfire Pitbull Greyhound. Um, he's about fifty pounds, about four years old. And then the newest addition, about a year ago now, is a about a hundred pound um, Pitbull, German Shepherd, Rhodesian Ridgeback type thing, depending on what you want to call him. So, um, yeah, big big rescue dogs and. Uh, got them all about a year old or so when we got them. So it's a little bit of a zoo at the house right now. I don't, <laughs> three, three seems we're outnumbered already. I don't think we could go any more than that. So, yeah. Well, that's awesome. I know that everybody jokes in strength and conditioning and athletic training as well is that you got to have your best friends. And so obviously whether it's a dog as a pet, or as we've talked about in some of our other podcasts of the role of the canine and just having a companion that goes with you, we've, we've seen a lot of stuff with therapy dogs. We've seen a lot of stuff with some of the scent detection. And so, um, obviously something that's super cool. Um, but also something that fills, fills a time that, you know, is so important because you do work a lot. And that's why I think when we started this call talking about that, you know, if you're doing this for, you know, the nine to five or to make a ton of money, um, you're in the wrong profession. I mean, just again, you're going to spend hours and hours at work. And, you know, you mentioned your wife, you know, is a saint for, you know, all the days and the three o'clock calls. Like, who's that? Jake from State Farm. <laughs> he says, khakis at three in the morning, but really it's someone over at the health center and, you know, they need your call, but having someone that understands that. So I think anybody in the field having that great support system obviously not only helps you big picture um, personally, but also professionally as well. So totally awesome. Uh, quick question. If someone wants to reach out to you or has any further questions or follow up, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, a couple of different ways. So I'm not super active on Twitter, but I am on Twitter. Uh, Tactical Beard AT is the Twitter. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so feel free to hit me up that way. Um, you know, I'm more than happy to give my 
my email is, is paulsmith.atc athletic trainer certified essentially at gmail.com. Um, more than happy to talk to anybody that way. You know, I, I think you, one of the things that you've done that I try to cherish and try to learn a lot from you is how you grow your professional network. And so, you know, more than happy to talk with anybody. I love learning from different people and um, trying to get different, different viewpoints and whatnot too. So more than happy to talk with anybody about what I've done, but also if there's anybody out there who disagrees with anything I'm talking about or whatnot, I'd love to talk to you too, because I want to keep learning and growing myself as well. Awesome. Well, Paul, I can't thank you enough. I can't wait to see you when you come back here to the East Coast, but it's always a pleasure. And again, good luck this offseason and then uh, we'll be in touch soon. Okay. Appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks right, for right. time.